This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Welcome back to the podcast. Not sure what that was all about. Um, just pulling everything together here, flipping all the switches, turning all the dials, um, getting things ready to go. So this is part five. This is our last episode uh, in this series, this deconstruction series we've been doing for a while now. September 5th, 2022. Uh, beautiful Sunday morning here in Southern California. Although we have a chance for rain, I believe. Pretty crazy. Love it when uh, when that happens. As always in the desert, you need rain. So we'll look forward to that if it happens. If it doesn't, well, it's just going to be another beautiful sunny day. So let's dive in. Um, I wanted to jump into the minute of transparency. Um, as you know, we've been doing it a little bit different in this series. Uh, so I'm just going to call this one rounding out my deconstruction. So I had kind of broken it up into different rounds, right? Round one of my deconstruction journey, round two, round three, round four, that sort of thing. And um, to quickly summarize, um, for those of you who are just diving in and we're not around for those, uh, in round one of my deconstruction journey, um, that basically involved deconstructing basic things I was taught as a child things that I believe everybody does when they get to the teenage years. They start looking at what their parents taught them and some of the stuff they go, wait, what? I don't know that I really believe that. Uh, so there were those things. Um, and then it was also the beginning of my religious deconstruction. So uh, I had ra been raised Seventh-day Adventist, and so I had started to move away from some of those traditional religious beliefs to a bit more progressive uh, religious beliefs. Uh, what I referred to as moving from me to we. Uh, round two of my deconstruction journey was me deconstructing big church. So this is after working for years at a mega church, uh, a couple different mega churches, uh, seeing the business side of them, you know, understanding that it was less about the spiritual strategy and more about the branding and the business strategy. Um, a very tried and true formula, don't get me wrong, one that is working in this country for sure, uh, but one that I really came to dislike. Um, I, I don't really feel like there's a lot of care for people. Uh, it's more about the brand and a lot of people get left behind. Uh, in round three of my deconstructive journey, um, I said that it was current and ongoing. So basically trying to make sense of my religious beliefs day in, day out, based on the culture, based on my current involvement in religious activities, whether I go to church or not. Um, and then obviously based on the political climate that exists today, because that's been a real challenge as well. Uh, round four of my deconstruction journey, I just described as a period of highly analytical thought right? Not so much removing things or changing things like we did in the first three stages or three rounds. Uh, it was a lot more data analyzing, um, trying to re refocus my view on the world and, and understand how I wanted it to be. Um, 
not necessarily how I wanted it to be, but I just, it was this search for truth, right? I want, I want to know what's true so that I'm not going all over the place um, and misled. I talked about it being more of remodeling, right? It's not so much deconstructing or reconstructing as it is just remodeling my room, taking things out, putting things back in, uh, trying to get a good feel for what, what the world is all about. And that's where we landed last week. So I thought I would finish things up uh, round five of my deconstruction journey. I'm just going to call this putting myself back together. And really, it's it's just taking all of the things, right? Taking the things that I deconstructed, taking the new things that I've learned, taking all of my research, all of my analysis, and it's putting it all back into a rebuilt worldview, Um it's making sense out of the chaos. It's realizing that I need to make some decisions moving forward, right? I need to take a stand on some of the things that that I had questions about or some of the things that I doubted. I really need to pick a, pick a direction and go for it. In this round, a phrase that really has kind of stood out to me is the phrase, you need to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Um, that was really important to me. And I think I think the most disconcerting thing about life prior to this is just the chaos, right? For me, life has been chaos for years. Uh, I spent a very big chunk of my life thinking and believing that somehow I had the truth, uh, that I was born into a family that was part of this religious tradition that magically had it all figured out. Somehow this religious tradition, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, had God's hand on it. We were God's people because we had the truth and it had been handed down to us over time. While other religions and denominations were just moving farther and farther away from the truth. But we somehow held on to it, protected it, and it was our job to carry it all the way through to the end of time. Wow. Just hearing myself say that makes me cringe. And yet there was comfort in that right? There was safety. There was this belief that no matter how crazy life got, it would be fine because you had the truth. Now, I'm assuming that this is very similar to being in a church like the Mormon church. They too believe that they hold the truth and that leaving the church is absolutely terrible, that it's leaving absolute truth. And this is kind of how I was raised. This was the indoctrination that I received. Uh, similar in the Catholic Church, right? The Catholic Church kind of has that understanding that they are the true church, and if you were to leave their church, you're in danger of your eternal salvation. Like I said, there's comfort in that. There's some level of peace and safety in believing that you know the truth. Because somewhere deep inside us, there is this fear of ambiguity. There's this desire to have answers to things. And there are three questions that kind of stand out um, over all other questions. I call them the big three questions, and we've talked about this before. But the big three questions are, where did we come from? Why are we here? And where do we go when we die? But those aren't the only answers we're looking for. As human beings, we just have that desire to understand things, like I said, to know the truth. I mean, don't you? I know I do. Totally I do. I see a car chase on the 405 and I want to know why. I want to know what happened and I want to watch to see how it ends. But a simple car chase pales in comparison to things like these. Why did the January 6th insurrection ever even happen? 
how can Russia think it's morally acceptable to invade Ukraine and kill innocent people? Why do senseless school shootings happen and police officers sit and do nothing for close to an hour? How can our climate be so out of whack that people everywhere are experiencing floods and droughts at the same time? If you're like me, you don't just sit around and accept things and say, well, it is what it is. No, we want to know why. We want answers. We want to know what can be done about it, or at least try to do something to keep it from happening. And I think that's it for me, right? It's a it's a desire for answers. It's a desire for truth. And that's kind of what has brought me to this point in the whole deconstruction process. Full circle from deconstructing to then some form of reconstructing, right? Putting the pieces of the puzzle back together in a way that makes sense. So this is round five. Today's topic, Transcendent Deconstruction, part five, the transcendent future. We're going to walk through three things today. First, it all starts with a question. Second, walking through the big rocks. And three, wrapping things up. Number one, it all starts with a question. So there's no way to sugarcoat this, right? When it comes to deconstruction and determining how far is too far, the real question you're trying to answer is this one. Do I believe in God or not? Now, you have some options here right? You can start with that question and then start deconstructing, or it can be the guiding question that you ask throughout your deconstruction process, or it can be the question you answer for yourself at the end of your deconstruction process. Or I guess it could be all of the above, but don't fool yourself. This is the ultimate question. When you tear away all of the fluff, when you deconstruct all of the dumb stuff, right? The stuff related to your denomination, the stuff related to the cult you find yourself in, the traditional religious beliefs that you can't find a biblical foundation for, the cultural stuff that you find to be abusive. After all of those things, you're still going to be faced with this question, but do I still believe in God? This is the question because it helps us answer the big three questions right? As human beings, we find ourselves stuck on this little rock in the middle of nowhere. And most of us uh, find comfort in being able to answer those big three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where do I go when I die? And at the end of the day, answering the God question helps determine the answers to those three questions. If I choose to believe in God, then there's some pretty solid answers to those big three questions. Now, that's not to say that they aren't debated still within Christianity, but there are some pretty solid answers you can get to those big three questions. But if you reject God, then you either need to accept the scientific explanation for our existence, which, don't get me wrong, there are some equally difficult conversations you have to have if you are an evolutionist, or if you're not going to believe in that, then you're really left searching for your own explanations to the big three questions, which can be a very lonely place to be. Now, as a Christian, I'm obviously referring to a specific God, right? The God of the Bible, uh, the God that is at the heart of the three major world religions. So the God of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, three religions that seem pretty different on the outside, and yet each grew out of a belief in the same God. In my research this week, I found that there 
These are referred to as the Abrahamic religions because all three take root in the life and beliefs of Abraham. So Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was a son that he had with one of his servants. Uh, it, it was a out-of-wedlock kind of situation where he had this kid because he didn't believe that God was actually going to give him one with his wife. And this relationship that ended with Ishmael led to the formation of the entire Islamic nation. Then Isaac, which was the son that God had promised um, Abraham that he would have with Sarah, um, led to the formation of the Israelite or Jewish nation. And eventually Christianity, the third out of the three, grew out of Judaism after Jesus came to earth and basically divided Judaism into two camps, right? There were there was the camp who rejected Jesus and continued to live on as the Jewish people. And then there were those who accepted Jesus, joined a group called The Way, and eventually became Christians. Now, another crazy thing I found in my research this week is that a foundation exists that's attempting to bring all three of those religious groups back together. Now, it probably isn't the only group, but it definitely seems to be one of the loudest voices right now in that space. It's called the Higher Committee of Human Fraternity, established in February of 2019. So, so the year before this whole COVID thing hit, this committee was formed by Pope Francis and his eminence, Ahmed Al-Tayyib, Grand Imam of Al-Azhar. So Christianity and Islam, right? Two, two people that are kind of like the supreme leaders of those establishments come together and they establish this committee. And then they drew up a document or a charter for the group. Eventually, um, a uh, rabbi, M. Bruce Lustig, join the group as well, which kind of completed the triad, right? So now you have Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all coming together at the same table. Shortly after that, the committee announced that they would build a physical manifestation of this committee or this fraternity. And this physical manifestation is called the Abrahamic Family House. It's this large campus in Abu Dhabi that contains three large con concrete buildings a mosque, a synagogue, and a church. All look a little bit different, but all kind of built with the same, you know, shape and meaning in mind. So there's one building for each of the Abrahamic religions. Interesting, right? And since 2019, numerous leaders have joined the committee, kind of signed their name on the on the document on the charter that they want to be part of this group. And a lot of work has been done to advance peace or, or unity or what they call fraternity around the world. Now, the Abrahamic family house is supposed to be completed this year, and I totally believe it will be. Um, I found the location on Google Maps, and when you switch over to the satellite view, even though the maps are old, you know, uh, anything you see on Google Maps is at least a couple years old. Um, but you go to that site and you look at that satellite view of this campus, and you see it. Right, You can see the three buildings, and they're already there. Now, that was a tangent, but I just found it fascinating because when you add up all of the people involved in these three religions, you find that they make up over 55% of the world's population. Now, you throw out the 16% that report that they don't care about anything. They don't have any religious or spiritual beliefs. 
and that percentage seems to go up even more. To me, that's significant, especially when we go back to my question, do I still believe in God? Because at the end of the day, it's pretty evenly split around the world. About half of the world's population believe in the God of Abraham, and the other half don't, right? They either choose to believe in multiple gods or things like reincarnation, um, allow, uh, allowing ourselves or having it within ourselves to transcend this world, or basically choosing to believe in nothing. So again, it sounds like that question is pretty important, right? It sounds like almost the entire world has dealt with that question on some level. And that's really where I'm at in my deconstruction process. Now, I know that I know that I know that I believe in God, right? It's just what I believe to be true. It's what every one of my senses tells me. It's what my conscience keeps telling me. And I put all of that together, and it's not something that I can deny, right? It's not something that I'm able to or capable of, of running or walking away from. So then what does this mean, right? When it comes to deconstruction, and I, I keep telling you that I'm on this deconstruction journey, what does that even mean? Because a lot of people in the world, when they go through the deconstruction process, they go all the way. They go all the way to being agnostic or atheist, right? They just, they choose not to believe anymore. But for me, it's different, right? I have chosen to deconstruct more of the religious and denominational baggage that I was given over time. But I'm removing these things in a framework, right? I've, I've given myself some guardrails. I've, I've set up some boundaries, and I'll call them my spiritual boundaries or my faith boundaries. And those boundaries are still there. They're guardrails to keep me from going off the rails. And so while I can deconstruct all sorts of things, um, I'm still going to hold true to this belief in a God. Now, like I said, not everyone has the same worldview that I have, right? Many will keep on deconstructing and go all the way down to the end of the line. For these people, they just can't bring themselves to believe, and that's the journey they're on. It may not always be that way, right? They may come back at some point, but for now, the road that they've walked down leads them to that worldview. But for me, like I said, there's a hard stop. I believe that God exists, so that's where my deconstruction process stops. I've stripped away everything that I can down to that, and now I'm working on putting pieces back together that I can understand and that I can verify to be true. And if I can't verify something to be true, I just leave it alone. This is the whole conversation we had about the difference between deconstructing your religion and deconstructing your faith. Some will deconstruct both, and I've simply chosen to deconstruct the religious part. Now, in the first episode of the Deconstruction Zone podcast that I, I talked about listening to, uh, they explained something that I fully resonate with. I believe it was Emily that made the statement. She said, we see deconstruction as running away from God, but you could also look at it as seeking who God actually is. And for me, this is so true, right? When I, when I started down the road of deconstruction, I was actually fearful, like I was giving up on God in some way. But the farther I got, the more I realized that, like Emily, I wasn't running away from God. I was literally trying to cut down some of the trees so that I could see him more clearly. And this is literally the DNA behind Transcend Human, right? Our mission statement for this entire podcast is 
how we can rise above the human condition. Our values, truth, transparency, growth, love, right? These these are literally the things that I documented back in 2020, uh, just before COVID hit, right? I, I documented this stuff because this is where my brain was heading. I must have already been logically working through, you know, the deconstruction process, or at least the start of it back then. Notice how I removed any reference to like religious things or denominational things. I simply chose the word transcend to describe the journey that we're on to become better people. And that literally summarizes where I'm at. Yes, I believe in God. And I believe that Jesus was God on earth. And that's all I need to know in order to figure out how to rise above the human condition. I've tried to strip away all that other man-made stuff and fluff and the the platforms and the the denominations and the megachurches. And I've tried to take all of that stuff off the table. And I'm just trying to do the next right thing based on his example. Number two, walking through the big rocks. So as I was working on this series, I knew that I would need to have a conversation about some of the big rocks, right? And I use the term big rocks to define two things. First, there are big rocks that lead us into the deconstruction process. And then second, there are big rocks that we need to make decisions on once we have deconstructed in order to reconstruct or maintain our belief in God on some level, okay? And again, this is this is me speaking from my own personal journey. And for the sake of time, I'm going to suggest that there are many of these, right? Many big rocks, but we're going to focus on a few. And I'm also going to cut time by saying that they can be one and the same. In other words, these are rocks that could start you on your process. And then they're also rocks that you'll probably need to come up with answers for in order to um, reconstruct that worldview that you need in order to keep moving forward. So let's look at some of the big ones. Number one, do I believe in God, right? We just walked through this, so we won't spend a lot of time on this, but just know that this is literally the most important question. When you start to wrestle with it, you will most likely enter the deconstruction process. And in order to get your feet back on solid ground, you'll probably need to find an answer at some point. Number two, how do I view the Bible? So the Bible is probably one of the biggest culprits when it comes to Christians deconstructing. Or maybe I should reword that and say the way Christians view the Bible is one of the biggest culprits. Why? Well, here's two reasons. First, because it exists, right? (laughs) It's this strange book where God, Jesus, the history of earth, the origin of the earth, the projected end of all things, all of that stuff lives in this one book. And as we see, it creates debate, misinterpretation, and unfortunately, it has been used as a weapon by many people in positions of power. Number two, because of the way it was sold to us. So for most of us, the Bible was sold as the inerrant word of God. That means that it includes absolute truth. There's no errors. Every single thing in it is important for us right here and now. Now, this definitely matches my story, my upbringing. I was taught all of those things. So I've had to come to terms with the fact that there are things in the Bible that just don't make sense, that just don't add up. There are contradictions and there are various literary techniques that are used, techniques that can't be taken literally. Uh, I had to get to the place where I stopped viewing it as the end-all, be-all, the thing that could be used to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was right and somebody else was wrong. 
and I had to begin to use it as an additional resource, just one more thing that helps me navigate the world around me. So here's how I'm trying to view the Bible today. There's three, three different ways I'm trying to view the Bible. First, that there is something very special about the Bible. So this book is different than every other book, and it's a difference that I don't think that we can overlook. It, it's not a book that one person could have easily knocked out, and it's not a book that could have just happened by accident. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples throughout the book historical accounts of things that match uh, with other books in history, explanations for things that science has only recently discovered. And then there are the predictions that have come true. Just just take one little subset of those prophetic um, predictions about the ones about Jesus, his birth, lineage, ministry, and death. You'd sooner be struck by lightning and win the lottery then have some of these prophecies come true exactly the way they, that they were described. And yet they did. So there's obviously something very special about this book. Number two, there's a good chance that parts of the Bible weren't meant to be taken literally. By now, there are many Bible scholars that agree that prophecy is one of those things, right? The visual depiction of dragons and beasts in the books of like Daniel and Revelation and uh, books like that are not literal, right? These are symbolic. These are representative of other things. Uh, but I become, I've even become comfortable with this in other areas of the Bible. Like even the stories that we heard growing up as children, it very well could be that some of these are true and others are fictitious stories that are meant to convey a principle or an idea. For example, have you ever really thought about the story of Jonah and the whale? Now, I'm not saying that this isn't possible because I believe God could make anything possible if he really wanted to. But at the end of the day, does it have to be true? Or could a story like this have been made up in order to get a point across? I don't know, but I'm learning it as I go and I'm trying to have an open mind so that I don't get so caught up in my indoctrination. And finally, number three, I'm learning that I will never fully understand the Bible. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that I should throw it out. But at the same time, it also means that I'll never get all of my questions answered, at least not this side of heaven. But at the end of the day, this really shouldn't scare us because people do this all the time, even scientists, right? I follow a guy on TikTok who explains the mysteries of the Great Pyramids. He's literally spent his entire life studying them. He knows a lot about them, but does he give it all up because some of his theories haven't come true? or because there are multiple theories that contradict each other? No, of course not. He keeps going, he keeps studying, and he keeps learning new things every day. The same should go for us when it comes to the Bible. Number three. So we're still working through some of the big rocks, right? The first was, do I believe in God? The second, how do I believe in the Bible? And the third is the inability to understand God. Now, this is one of the things that I believe triggers people to deconstruct. The whole concept of the Trinity, how can God be three different beings, but at the same time, God is one being? The mood swings of God, how is it that he's so angry, aggressive, demanding, and brutal in the Old Testament? But then when Jesus comes along in the New Testament, it's all about love and community, right? God allowing bad things to happen to good people, allowing innocent people and children to die. Um, you know, these are all things that really get people riled up and confused. And I'm not going to lie, I have some of this stuff figured out a little bit of it, but I still struggle with the God of the Old Testament. 
it's really hard to view the militant God that actually wiped out entire people groups as a loving, caring God. But this is one of the big rocks, right? This is one of the things that we either need to come to an understanding about, or we have to be okay with not knowing and not understanding until he returns. Number four, dealing with Christian exclusivity. So this is a big one, right? This is another difficult thing for Christians to carry. This whole idea that the only way to eternal life is through Jesus. In other words, you have to be a Christian in order to go to heaven. You have to be like us. You have to believe like us. Very narcissistic, right? Think about the trauma that this has caused throughout time. Think about the Crusades where the Catholic Church literally demanded that other people believe as they did or be killed. Today in our country, Christian nationalism, right? It's starting to feel very similar. This behavior creates polarization. It's us versus them. But this isn't the way Jesus lived. This isn't the Jesus way. He never forced people to believe in him. He simply told them the good news, and then he asked them to come along for the ride. I think this is one of the biggest issues in the church today. You know, people begin with the deconstruction process because of this exclusivity, uh, throw in the, the new political side of the faith, and they move even faster because they can't see the love, right? It's been replaced with this anger and this control and this coercion. Now, we all know Christianity does not equal Christian nationalism, but the world can easily miss this fact, right? They can get the two confused. Um, then they see the way large churches are imploding due to bad behavior, narcissistic leadership, stuff like that. And at this point, they just want nothing to do with us. People inside Christianity are deconstructing like crazy, and people outside are moving even farther away. This was a big part of my deconstruction journey, to be honest. Um, as we've discussed the whole big church thing, the mega church formula, church as a business, uh, people being left on the road behind the fast moving train, all of those things and more played into my deconstruction, right? These are things I had to get figured out in my own head. On the one hand, I wanted nothing to do with it anymore. But on the other hand, if I still believe in God and Jesus, I can't just throw it all out because Jesus is all about community. He's about people. And how are we going to have community and be around other people without some form or some version of church? And this was really hard for me because what I was doing is I was shifting away from the religious side of things to more the people side of things, right? I was, I was developing a more others-centric view of the world, moving away from the egocentrism that we were taught in traditional Christianity and living in a capitalistic society where it's all about me and, and my needs and what I believe, and becoming more and more altruistic the way that Jesus lived his life. And recently, I've even started to deconstruct the whole concept that a person can only enter heaven by believing in Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. This exclusivity and narrow view of things is part of my indoctrination, but one that I've never been fully comfortable with, right? And what I've landed on is a slightly modified version of what I was taught. So I've come to believe that what the Bible refers to as believing in Jesus might be different for different people. For Christians living in the modern world with access to the Bible, this might be the way, right? But what about people in other countries? What about a person living in the Amazon jungle? People who grew up and the only thing that they've ever heard when it comes to spirituality or spiritual stuff are the teachings of Confucius. 
or maybe they grew up believing 100% in reincarnation. So what do we do in these situations? How do we view these people? Are they just lost? Are they just doomed? Because they didn't have the luxury of growing up in a uh, true Christian home like you and I did? Now, I can't imagine that this is the case. Now, some people will quote Matthew 24, 14 in the Bible and say that the gospel will eventually be preached to the entire world and then the end will come. And I don't disagree with that, especially with the internet and the Bible being readily available online. But I don't believe that that means every single person on the planet will read it and be fully convinced about the Christian plan of salvation prior to the world ending. I've come to believe that Jesus dying on the cross was the plan, the plan for every human being past, present, and future. But I believe that he works with every person on earth in whatever form or fashion he needs to in order to give them the opportunity, right? The same opportunity that one of us uh, Bible-thumping Christians um, has going for us. So what could this look like? Well, maybe it's Jesus appearing to Muslims in dreams and calling them to believe in him, right? I've heard numerous stories about um, a Muslim person coming to a Christian community and saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. There was this man in a white robe and he was calling to me, asking me to believe in him. And I do, I believe, I believe that he is the one I should be following. I mean, what is that if not a conversion story, right? Maybe it's the Holy Spirit working through the conscience of a person in the jungle, showing them that he exists and how to believe in him. I don't know. But in each of these situations, I believe that God will do business with every person on earth to the point that they will have the choice to believe in him or not, even if they never hear the story about Jesus on the cross. People in every nation, every country, every religion. So no, I don't believe that every road leads to heaven when it comes to the world religions, but I do believe that every person in every religion will have the knowledge necessary to choose God or reject God. Now, I began thinking this way a while ago, and it actually brought the story of Jonah up again in my brain. So here's the question, right? Jonah went to the king of Nineveh, and he told him to stop doing the evil things that they were doing. The king admitted, yes, we have been acting pretty poorly. Then the king told his entire country, we've been in the wrong. We've been doing bad things. And he asked every person to do a, a deep dive into their soul and, and try to change. And because of their change of heart, God literally spared their entire civilization. Now, here's the question. Were the people of Nineveh only saved on that day, like from, from the death of a, a battle? Or were they saved in such a way as to provide them eternal life? Like, will they be in heaven? Did they receive eternal life by making that decision to change that day? I have no idea. No, there's no way to know for sure. But what I do believe is that the people of Nineveh didn't become Jews or Christians. They didn't start performing animal sacrifices for their sins. And they didn't, they didn't know that Jesus would come and die on a cross for their sins someday. Could it be that the Ninevites are an example of the way God will work with people who have never heard the truth? Could it be that Jonah gave them the basics and God did the rest, that God worked in their hearts and this interaction is what saved them? Anyway, for me, this was a huge change in my thinking, and it has helped me to reconstruct that area of my life, that big rock on some level. 
Number five, and this is the last one in this section. So getting comfortable with science. Now, growing up, I was always taught that it was us versus them. And I think a lot of you who were raised in traditional Christianity probably had the same upbringing, right? It was creation versus evolution, religion versus science. I don't think my parents ever specifically said it this way or told me uh, that this dichotomy existed. In fact, my dad was a medical technologist. So much of what he did was predicated on a belief in science and the scientific method. But I got the idea somewhere at church, in my Christian school, and on some level, I looked at science as the the bad guys, right? The false religion, a group of people trying to answer the big three questions without God or the Bible. Now, a scientist probably wouldn't be happy with me saying that. Uh, what they would say is, no, science is a branch of knowledge or study dealing with a body of facts or truth systematically arranged and showing the operation of general laws. The systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. Because that's the definition I found on dictionary.com. At the end of the day, a scientist is working every single day to answer questions that they have, questions about the world. Uh, it might be questions like this, how can we save the earth? Or I wonder if there are other planets where life may be sustainable. Or maybe it's as simple as, I wonder if there's a way around gravity. But whatever the question is, many times it goes back to answering one of the big three questions. For example, just look at Darwin, among others, who slowly moves science away from the Christian community. The goal being to develop scientific explanations for the big three questions, rather than spiritual or religious ones. Now, I don't know what I don't know that this was Darwin's goal. I don't know that he specifically set out to do this, but it was definitely the end result. It was definitely the byproduct of his work and the work of his contemporaries. Again, here are the big three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where do I go when I die? Darwin's theories answer these questions in very specific terms. So where did I come from? The Big Bang Theory, right? The scientific explanation for the origin of our species. Now, the Big Bang Theory wasn't actually um, put forth by Darwin. It was put forth by Georges Lemaire, uh, a French person who did a lot of different things. But but basically, Darwin's theory of evolution is built off of this idea, this concept. The two are not incompatible. Next question, why am I here? Well, the scientific explanation of our purpose for life is natural selection and survival of the fittest. And then finally, where do I go when I die? Uh, you know, science is very quick to point out extinction-level events, right? That's, that, that's what they would suggest would end our life on Earth. Uh, things like the planet being hit by a life-ending meteor, or the planet overheating or freezing in, an, in another ice age, things like that. So where do I go when I die? I just die, right? That's, that's science's explanation for the third big three question. But back to this whole us versus them thing, right? What would it look like if this wasn't the case? What would it look like to be comfortable with both? and incorporate both of them into our worldview. That's the approach I've taken over time, and here's why. I believe that God created science. So the more we know about science, the more that we should see our true nature of our creator, God. Now, it's obvious that science can be used to disprove God and to disprove things found in the Bible, but there are simple explanations for these types of things. 
A major one is confirmation bias, right? There are scientists who are out to prove that God doesn't exist. And if this is the lens for your work, if this is the filter that you run all of your work through, you'll see what you want to see. We know this is true because we, we've seen it with data, right? You've heard it a thousand times that people can make the data say whatever they want it to say. And we've seen this time and time again. Scientific studies proved that drinking wine was good for your heart. The study suggested that it was the alcohol that helped make this true. Unfortunately, it was not true at all. In fact, it was later found that the chemical produced by the grapes was the thing that was good for the heart. So a glass of grape juice would have had the same effect without the damaging uh, effect of alcohol. Here's another one. Think back to the human skeletons they found that supposedly provided the missing link between animals and humans. For a while, these were held up as proof of Darwin's theory until we found out that they were fake, right? They had been part of an elaborate hoax. Another explanation is that we could be wrong. There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of scientific theories that were eventually proven to be false. <clears throat> now, that isn't a bad thing. In fact, we need this to happen in order to find the theories that are true. But we can get so caught up in ourselves that we forget that we're fallible. A huge example of this is carbon dating. The science community will die on this hill, even though there are numerous studies that prove it to be questionable or highly inaccurate even. And a final explanation is that there are just some things we'll never understand. Now, this makes total sense if you hold the Christian view of God. If he is all-knowing, and if he created the earth using math, chemistry, physics, and science, there's a good chance that we as humans, who use 10% of our total brain capacity, will never fully understand it. But again, is there anything wrong with that? No, we don't need to understand it all because someday he will explain it all to us. And how cool will that be to someday sit and listen to God explain the scientific facts behind creation and our existence on earth? Okay, that's all the time we have now for Big Rocks, um, though there are others that we didn't have time to touch on, but we'll leave it there for now. Number three, wrapping things up. Now, hopefully this series has been educational, right? A brain dump, a data dump of all things deconstruction, but hopefully it's been practical at the same time. I've tried to use my story in a way that helps illustrate the indoctrination, enlightenment, deconstruction cycle, knowing of course that it's not the end-all be-all story. Everyone who goes through the deconstruction process will do it for their own reasons and will come out of it in a different place than the next person because we're all different. We're all unique. But to wrap things up, I just want to address the title of this episode. I called it The Transcendent Future. So we've spent a lot of time looking at the past, right? We've, we've spent a lot of time working through the deconstruction process going on in the past and in the present. But what does the future look like for those of us who are going through this process? What does it look like to come out on the other side? Uh, what have we stopped doing? What have we started doing? How do we view other people? How do we view the world around us? These are all very important questions that I believe we need to be asking ourselves as we move into this uncertain future. Now, I'm going to throw out a hypothetical because I've never been super dogmatic about these sorts of things. But let's just say that we're living at the very end time, the end of Earth's history, hypothetically. Now, 
obviously, we, we can't just say this because of some thing that we see in the world, some natural disaster or a global event that seems apocalyptic like COVID-19. Um, looking back, I mean, this is what happened over and over again, right? I, I believe it was after 9-11 when many people started just jumping to that conclusion. Oh, we must be living at the end of time because that was terrible. And yet here we are 20 years later. But as Christians, we do believe that the Bible lists the kinds of things that will be going on at the end of time. And there do seem to be a lot of those things happening right now. And then there's this other thing, right? There's this thing called the 7,000-year theory, which is just mind-boggling to me, right? When you really dig into it and you really find out what it means and how it coincides with the rest of the Bible, it's bizarre. Basically, the thought is this. So the Bible explains that God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh, right? That's where we get the weekly cycle that we live under. The theory asks, what if God is a geek? <laughs> what if he is a math or science nerd and he just loves for everything to work out perfectly, for there to be order and complexity, even in the chaos that is the human condition? And so they suggest the following. Bible scholars believe the earth was created roughly 4,000 years before Jesus came to earth. Jesus was born and died, and that was roughly 2,000 years ago. You put these two time periods together, and we're up to what? 6,000 years. Next, the Bible describes this thing called the millennium, which is to begin when Jesus returns. It's a period of what? A thousand years. And it's a thousand years of rest with him in heaven. So we work for six days and rest on the seventh day. The earth keeps working for six groups of a thousand years and rests on the seventh group of a thousand years. Crazy, right? Like I said, hypothetical. But what if it were true? What does this have to do with deconstruction? Well, let me tie it all together. Like I've said before, deconstruction isn't a new thing. In fact, I believe people have been de deconstructing throughout time. We even talked about how God potentially deconstructed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's almost as if God was saying, you are made in my image, and my image just deconstructed, so you will most likely deconstruct. I know that's a little out there, but very interesting to think about. However, the deconstruction that we're seeing right now, the deconstruction that's happening at this point in time in Earth's history, seems to be a little bit different. It, it seems to be happening at an alarming rate to the point where there seems to be this like mass exodus away from traditional church, right? People are leaving the church. They're starting their own churches. Ultimately, all of these people are trying to figure out what's going on, what's right, what's wrong, and all of that. And in this culture of deconstruction, I couldn't help but see a parallel in the Bible. Where, you ask? In the book of Revelation. Again, hypothetically, thinking through the whole end of time thing, I couldn't help but see a correlation in the prophecies of the Bible. Now, prophecy is scattered all throughout the Bible. However, the books of Daniel and Revelation seem to be these like bookend prophetic books, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. They seem to fit really well together, and they, they offer a prophetic timeline 
that is just incredible. In the book of Daniel, it, it kind of starts off by documenting the civilizations, the older civilizations like Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And then it makes a inference um, into what it looks like all the way down to the second coming of Jesus. Then John comes along in Revelation, and he adds even more detail to these prophecies. In the first three chapters of his book, John walks through <clears throat> these things called the letters to the seven churches. Seven letters for seven churches. Now, theologians believe that these letters can be read in three distinct ways. First, church-specific. So they believe that each letter was written to that specific church for the congregation that was attending that church at that time. Next is a personal explanation. So the belief that each letter is applicable to every church and to every person throughout time. And then the third belief is that each of the churches is prophetic. In other words, each letter describes a period of time between Jesus's death and the end of time. And these are referred to as the ages of the church or the church ages. But it's the last one that I want to talk about because the whole prophetic explanation is interesting. This idea that each of those letters was written for a specific period of time in earth's history. So the obvious question to me is this, which letter is written for us? And that answer might scare us because it is fairly well recognized by a lot of theologians that all six of the church ages have come and gone, meaning that the only one left is the seventh or final church age. And the seventh or final letter was written to the seventh church, which is the church of Laodicea. And here's what that letter contains. So this letter is in Revelation 3, verses 15 to 21. And what it starts out with is a warning for those of us living at the end of time. In the first two verses, it says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, but then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. But what you don't know is that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In the next two verses, God offers a solution. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then the last two verses offer a reward. God says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, like I said, hypothetically, if we're living in the last days, this is what's being asked of us right? God has analyzed the church and found that it's all business, that we're having fun, we're enjoying our weekend services, we're building the brand, we're following our narcissistic leaders, but there's no passion in us and there's no truth on some level. We're just spectators watching a great show, 
comfortable with our lives because we have no need for the things that God is offering. So what does he ask us to do? Deconstruct. (laughs) Sound familiar? The solution is to refocus on the things that matter by deconstructing the lukewarm behavior that we have going on. What are these things? Well, he mentions three. The first is gold, which stands for the things that we value. We are supposed to choose God over the worldly power and fame and wealth that we've been chasing. Next, he mentions white garments. This 100% refers to our thinking and our behaving. It's just choosing to do the right thing, even when it's not fashionable. And then he talks about ISAV, right? And that refers to our ability to understand the truth. Basically, he's calling us blind. Spiritually, we are blind. And we need to put the ISAV on our eyes so that they open, which allows us to see the truth. How crazy is that, right? To me, the ISAV is the enlightenment process that we've talked about. It's coming out of the fog. It's realizing that we've been indoctrinated to believe things that aren't true or helpful. And when we begin to deconstruct, we trade in the worldly gold for eternal gold. And we change in our dirty rags for clean white robes. Now, could it be that this deconstruction movement that we are seeing in the world today is nothing less than the Church of Laodicea, right? The Church of Laodicea literally opening its love letter from God. Let's land the plane. So I cannot begin to tell you how crazy this series was for me to write. Uh, It was front of mind, it was felt need, and at the same time, it was highly personal because I'm literally smack dab in the middle of it all, right? Deconstructing and reconstructing at the same time as many of you. It's difficult, it's painful, at times it's scary, but I couldn't shake this feeling that this is where we're at in the world, that there's this movement and enlightenment and awakening, if you will, that's going on in the hearts and the minds of people all over the world. A movement out of this lukewarm slumber that we've been in for so long. And it's lighting a fire that will help us to see that this comfort that we enjoy has actually led us away from our reliance on God. I hope you've enjoyed the series and that you were able to find a nugget here or there um, that can help you take your next step in your journey. I love that we get to do this together every week. Um, Here are three questions that you can ask this week if you are in the deconstruction process like me. First, have you answered the million-dollar question, do you believe in God? If so, how does this impact your deconstruction process? If not, same question. Number two, what were the big rocks that pushed you into the deconstruction journey? And where do you stand on those big rocks today, right? Have you worked through them? If not, what can you do this week to keep moving in that direction? And finally, have you ever seen yourself as a member of the Church of Laodicea? If, hypothetically, we are living at the end of time, what does that mean? What what does it mean to our deconstruction process? How does that play into the things that God put in this letter, right? What should we start doing? What should we stop doing? And how on earth can we turn up the heat so that we move from comfort to reliance on God? 
Friends, thank you so much for being here. I hope that you've enjoyed this series. Next week, I am a blank slate. I have absolutely no idea. I've spent so much time and energy on this series, so much research, so much um, time just thinking through the concepts that we've gone through that I have not even had time to plan for the future. But we'll be back next week. It'll be great. We'll have another topic, um, and I would love for you to be there. So have a great week, everyone. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.